Would you like to have less difficulties and problems and frustrations in your life? There's a very simple solution. Agree with God. Make your expectations upon the promises of God. Now, that doesn't mean that everything is going to be easy. But whatever you encounter that's difficult, you won't have to deal with it alone. When you are walking in trust and faith, that Spirit, His Spirit, will be upon you. You will be living under His anointing. And God's provision will be available to you. And you will demonstrate what it means to be an overcomer. Now, we need to understand the promises of God. Specifically, His promise to Israel. And when I say Israel today, for the most part, I'm speaking about the children of Jacob. Speaking about Jewish people in the natural sense. See, God has made a unique promise to Israel. Now that promise is going to be realized and worked out by God after the end. Now, what end am I speaking about? Well, the same one that we read about from Messiah. When he was on that Mount of Olives and speaking about the last days to his disciples. He uses that word end three times. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, verse 13, and verse 14. And I would suggest to you that if you don't know what end that he's referring to, that it makes understanding prophecy, the order of these last day events, very difficult. When he says the end, he's not speaking to the world. He is not addressing the same word, it's a different Greek word, that his disciples said. When they spoke about the end of the age, this coming together for a conclusion, he used a different word for a different purpose. When he spoke about the end, he was speaking to his disciples. The end that we're speaking about is the end of the ecclesia, that is the church in this world. We see in Matthew 24 and verse 14, that gospel of the kingdom, so important that you hear that term, the kingdom, it must be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to the nations. And then the end will come. The next verse, verse 15. He speaks about a very important event. What's known as the abomination of desolation. And it's with that, that event, that's going to bring about a major change. Because in the next verse, verse 16, 
He doesn't speak about believers. He turns his attention to Israel, the Jewish people, those in the land of Judah. And the reason why he's doing so is what we've already learned. I said it Friday night, I said it on Shabbat, and I'll say it now. The Apostle Paul tells us that after the fullness of the nations, he is going to turn his attention back uniquely to the Jewish people. Now, that fullness of the nations also includes Jewish individuals. That end that we're talking about is the end of the church age, and that includes both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. But here's what we need to see. After that end, and the ending has to do with that glorious promise, that blessed hope, when God will remove the ecclesia, those who have been called out by faith in the gospel, they're going to be removed prior to the wrath of God. And we learned that that wrath of God, even though the Jewish people unbelieving will still be in the world, that wrath being poured out is not upon them. They are going to be sealed with a purpose. They are going to be protected just like we saw the Jewish people in Egypt, in that land of Goshen. And God is going to bring wrath upon them, that is upon the nations. And we saw this last night. It is going to be that full outcome of God's wrath that will come to its conclusion with the second coming when that remnant of Israel, the Jewish people, that one-third, will look upon Messiah and they will come to faith. And what we see here is that God is not finished with the Jewish people. He is going to adhere this uniquely in a special way. Bring that remnant to faith. And what should be our response? Well, now, take out your Bible and look with me to Sephania and chapter 3. We began that chapter last night, and now we're going to conclude it as we begin in verse 14. Now, Israel, what have they done? They have been restored to that pure speech in order that they might call on the name of the Lord. That they might experience that same reconciliation to God and have that same kingdom hope. See, the problem is this. Many people believe that God is replacing Israel, finished with Israel, but prophetically, we see that after the rapture, God is going to move uniquely with the Jewish people in a powerful way. Why? He is faithful. He keeps promises. And we should expect just that. 
And if you have just a little bit of natural vision, you can see this. God has uniquely began to replace, replace His people back in the land. Put them back. Why? When you look at prophecy, and I'm talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, when you look at the minor prophets, almost without exception, they tell that in the last days, God is going to place His people back in the land. Aren't you witnessing that? Aren't you seeing that taking place despite terrorism, despite great opposition politically from the United Nations, the European Union, the Arab League? Makes no difference. If you are a good student of recent history, the United Nations said that the settlers, those who live in what the Bible calls Judah, and Samaria, the heartland of Israel. See, there's settlers there, and they are seen with a consensus among those who are of a worldly perspective as great problem. They, they need to be uprooted. And sometimes even the Israeli government participates and removes Jewish people from the land that God has promised. But despite all of these political efforts, the number of Jewish people in that specific area, Judah and Samaria, it grows, grows, and grows faster than any other portion of the Jewish nation. Why? God is faithful. It does not matter what the United Nations, the European Union says or wants. God says, I'm restoring the people. I'm replacing them. I'm putting them back in this location as a sign. If you doubt that, let me share with you just one prophecy. The book of Obadiah. Just 21 verses, but so significant. It is a prophecy that is unique because it's not addressed to Israel. It's addressed to the nations. And in that last verse, verse 21, it says, Then the kingdom will be the Lord's. Meaning, then that kingdom is going to be established. Now, if you're wise what you would ask yourself is this. What has to happen? What must take place for that to be the reality? Then the kingdom belongs to the Lord. You just read immediately before that. We're talking about Jewish people, the children of Jacob, dwelling in certain specific locations. That is going to happen. That kingdom will not come in its fullness until this takes place. Now, my hope is this, that that kingdom experience is your chief joy. That time that's coming when we will be 
in a new condition, a new body, that we will be in the very presence of God and we'll have that foretaste. There's not going to be problems, hardships, pain, sorrow, death for us. We're going to be in that new condition of glory. We should be praying and being prepared for that experience. And what is the main thing that we should think about in regard to that establishment of the kingdom? Joy. If you're not joyful about this, then you've missed out on the meaning of intimacy with God, understanding what that is going to bring about. Look, if you would, to verse 14. Now, as we study these last few verses of Sephania chapter 3, we're going to see several different words that speak of joy, gladness, happiness, a, a contentment that is beyond the natural. And we see that in the first word, Roni. It is a word of a shout. It is a word that speaks of great emotion and one that is rooted in joy. A unique, a supernatural joy. And he says here, shout, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. The term daughter, very different than son. Daughter is a term of endearment. It speaks about a future condition that we should expect. And that future condition is seen in the term Sion. Sion, it comes from a word which means to mark, but to mark with a purpose, to set apart for excellency. If you want the excellent things of God, they're not found in this world. They're found in the kingdom. And so it says, rejoice, but it's a word of shouting, to shout with joy, O daughter of Zion. Then we have a, another word, a word for joy as well. It says, rejoice, O Israel. We see the parallelism, the daughter of Zion and Israel. Two kingdom terms. Now here, when it says Israel, it's speaking about the kingdom Israel. Continue. Be glad and rejoice. Two different words. We haven't encountered them in this verse yet. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Now, we hear that in English, with all your heart. We usually think of intensity in a complete manner. But heart, biblically, is related to the thought. So when it says with all your heart, it's telling us that that joy, that gladness, is going to fulfill every thought of our heart. It is going to go beyond what we can simply imagine. That's the kingdom 
that God has prepared for His people. And the good news, and we need to acknowledge this, the good news is a faithful God, the only faithful God, He keeps His covenant promises, and that kingdom will not be established. It won't come about until that remnant of Israel, that, that last part of the Jewish people, come to faith. And God is going to bring them to faith, as we saw last night, in the midst of His wrath being poured out, not upon them, but upon the nations. And they are going to learn, as we found last night, the righteousness of God. And they're going to be brought to repentance. They're going to be brought to faith as they look upon Messiah and His second coming when He brings that last outpouring, that full measure of the wrath of God. Look at verse 15. It says, The Lord has removed your judgments. The time for judgment upon this nation has ended. Now, the last phrase in verse 14 was, daughter of Jerusalem. Now, I hope you see the connection. Because the term Jerusalem, two Hebrew words, Lareshet and Shalom. Lareshet means to inherit. Shalom is related to the fulfillment of God's will. Jerusalem is a term, and that's why the final state of the kingdom of God is called the New Jerusalem, whereby we will inherit fully all that God has willed for us. Everything His good plan for His new covenant people. But here He says, I will remove, that is the Lord, the Lord, He has removed your judgments. Now, why in the plural? Well, remember prophetically, God says to Israel that I will punish you double for your sins. That they're going to receive a double portion of punishment. Now, one way that that is understood from a last day perspective Two-thirds are lost. One-third are brought to faith. So God says here, the Lord has removed your judgments. The king of Israel. Now, if you were to ask any Orthodox rabbi, can you give me another word to help me understand a synonym for Mashiach, Messiah? I don't think anyone would give you a different word other than malach, meaning king. That word Messiah, that anointed one, it's speaking about the one who is anointed to be king. And therefore, when we look at this, and this is upheld by most commentators, when it says, the king of Israel, speaking about Messiah. You can't have a king without a kingdom. Therefore, he must be there. So it's him. 
And what has he done? Well, he has cleared away, but Hebrew is so wonderful. Because you can have a verb in its light form, its basic form. But you can also have another verb, a different verbal form called the piel, which is in the intensive form. So it's just not him removing, clearing away, but it's in that unique, that intensified stem where it says, the king of Israel will clear away your enemy. Now that's good news. And one of the purposes of Messiah when he comes, and we're not talking now about the rapture, but the second coming. One of the things that he's going to do is to remove the enemy. All enemies. We know that, that Satan himself is going to be bound. You know what I like about this? No, we know that there are specific angels. There's Michael, who is like the Lord, a unique angel. There's Gavriel, that word Gaver means power, might. So that mighty angel of God. Now, I would think when it comes to binding Satan, one of those would do the work. But it's not. When you look at the scripture, what it says is simply that he calls to a angel, nothing specific, nothing definite, just an angel. And that angel binds Satan. Now, you know the reason for that? Because he already has been defeated. It's not one of these big angels, but any angel is able to bind him and cast him into that abyss. And therefore, we see here that the king of Israel, Messiah, he is going to remove, clear away your enemy. And as the enemy departs defeated, notice what it says. Hashem, that yud Hey vav the Lord, is in your midst. That's the good news. This is what we see about the nature of God. See, normally what we have is this. If there's a meeting between two people, and one is important and the other one's not so important, it's that not so important one that goes to where that important one is. That's just normal, but not with God. Over and over in the Scripture, in fact, when we look at the Scripture, God's chief desire is to dwell with you. It is so significant, and we see that several times in this third chapter, where it says, the Lord is in your midst. And there's a great benefit from that. Notice how it concludes. The Lord is in your midst, and you will no longer fear evil. Now, evil is a specific word. Evil is the opposite. It is in the, the exact difference of the will of God. What he's saying is this, in the kingdom, we are going to receive the fullness of the will of God. 
And all of that comes about because God is with us. See, naturally, we would think, I want to be with God. I'm going to go to Him. But prophetically, from a kingdom perspective, and it's so interesting to me. In fact, there's a, a good Bible teacher. I, I like him. I think he does an excellent job. But he had a, a sermon series, Heaven, Our Eternal Habitation. Not true. Not true. See, heaven is temporary. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The new Jerusalem, the kingdom. See, we always think about going to heaven, but when we have a kingdom perspective, it's about the Lord of lords, the King of kings, coming to us. How amazing is that? His chief desire is to dwell with his people. And he does everything that's necessary to bring that about. And the outcome of that is no more fear. What a great blessing. Never to fear anything. When there's no fear, there is perfect love. That's what the scripture says. Verse 16. That familiar phrase, Bayom Haku, on that day. It's to remind us all of this is coming about, all of this goodness is coming about for one reason because of God's judgment. You hear that. And I've shared with you many times how frequently people say, stay away from judgment. No, no one wants to hear that. that that's not encouraging. That's not going to build us up. False. See, they don't understand God's judgment. The primary purpose of God's judgment is to set things in order. The question that we have to ask ourselves, do we really want God's order in our life? I'm doubtful. I'm doubtful. Because when you look at the most popular teachers today from a Christian perspective, the emphasis of their teaching is not how to find God's order in your life, but how to order God around to get what you want. And it's tragic because there's no peace, there's no joy, there's not really a blessing when I'm where I want to be. No, the joy, the contentment, the peace, the blessing is only found in His will. We need to be prayerful concerning His purpose for my life. Not trying to get God to do what I want. He says, verse 16, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Second time. God is emphasizing, With me, when I'm in your midst, there is no fear. Now, you can have a foretaste of that. See, I think one of the reasons why, when we deal with the last days, people want to think, and I understand this, they want to think before anything gets difficult, we're gone. 
But that's not the message for a servant of God. Remember that message? We talked about it. Pick up your cross and follow me. It says in the scripture, they hated Messiah. The world's going to hate you. And not just hate, they persecuted him. They're going to persecute you. In fact, the promise that we have is this. Because of our faith, because of that new covenant relationship, because we belong to not this world, but to the kingdom, we are going to suffer. We are going to be opposed. We are going to be viewed as the enemy. Don't you see that today? More and more we see governments around the world and in this country that see if you are a committed believer, you're a problem. You've got to be dealt with. You may be sent to kind of a rehabilitation center to try to rid you of believing the Scripture. And I can share with you some of the largest congregations, they are, are editing through what they have on their website. Certain messages, certain stances that they took, certain things which the Bible calls an abomination, they are removing things from that. They want to comply. Let me tell you, God hates compliance with the world. It's faithlessness. It is a lack of love. It's a lack of trust. It is done by one who really does not depend upon him. See, we need to remember what the word of God says. Acts 14, 22. It is necessary to go through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, it's not saying that it's that suffering and going through persecution that plays a part in our salvation. That's heresy. It's just a statement that before that kingdom comes, the body of believers, you and me, we're going to go through much tribulation. Check out that scripture. Acts 14, 22. That is where the world is going. And too much of our fellow brothers and sisters, they have no idea what's coming. They are totally unprepared. And if you were to ask me, how would you describe the believing community throughout the world during what we went through the last couple years? It is a church that is handicapped by fear. Handicap cannot function as God intended. And when we are in fear, we won't have discernment. When you are terrified, you don't make good decisions. You don't see things clearly. And that's the problem. We need to understand that's why Matthew 24, look at the teachings of Messiah. He says there's going to be birth pains. There's going to be wars. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. The Texas Receptus, there's going to be pestilence. All these things. And after that, all of that prepares things for a change. Then he says, you are going to be 
persecuted. See, it's going to get so much worse. And I'm greatly concerned for the strength, the fervency of the people of God today. Messiah says, do not fear, Zion. Don't fear, O kingdom people. And then notice how verse 16 ends. Basically, it means don't let go. Don't give in. Don't capitulate. Literally, don't let your hands let loose. It is a term that says, don't compromise, remain committed. And really what, what God's looking for is people of passion that are so committed and passionate for righteousness. If you say, oh, I love that kingdom, that kingdom's important to me, but you're not concerned with righteousness, there's a disconnect. Something's not right. And we're going to see this world as we prepare for the Antichrist. It's amazing to me. We, we get a lot of things sent to our office here in Merritt Island. Hate to say it. Most of it is garbage. It's garbage. They will send things, and most of it has to do with the last days. And they'll get verses and such. And it has nothing to do with their perspective. Because although they quote verses, in fact, not too long ago, I won't mention the city, but I was given a diagram of the last days. A lot of professional work went into it. And, and the problem is this. There's all these biblical citations there to support their views. But I'll tell you what you need to do. Go through them. And as I began to talk to this individual, I said, why do you have that verse there? It, it doesn't, let's, let's open it up. And as I looked at it after we left, he gave me a copy. So ridiculous. Just throwing things out. And the reason is this. People oftentimes are in bondage to what they've heard. Dangerous. I know faith comes by hearing, but hearing the Word of God. Not hearing someone else, not hearing me. Hearing the Word of God. That's why over and over, see, we get emails why do you repeat when you teach the same verse over and over, those same phrases? Because it's much more important that you hear this than me. So I'm going to go back over and over. Why? My primary purpose is to put Scripture into you. Not what I think or what I've heard someone else think. So he says, don't give up. Be passionate, be committed. Verse 17. Again, the Lord your God is in your midst. Now, it's interesting because 
if you go through rabbinical commentators, they tend to take a passage and just comment on a few things. You look at Rashi, you look at others, and they don't, not everything, it's impossible. But they only put a few selective things. That's okay, I like that. Because when you look here at the next phrase where it says, Gibor Yoshia, a mighty one will save. Now, if you look, what's the view rabbinically? A reference to Messiah. I received that. Wonderful. But they say that, but they do not think about what was written before. It says in verse 17, the Lord, your God, is in your midst. And then we see a reference directly to Messiah. This mighty one who will save. And as an outcome of salvation, it says, he will rejoice over you with gladness. And then notice the last part where it says, and he will quiet you. He will make you silent. That's literally what it is. It's a word for being deaf, unable to speak. There's no reason to speak. And what brings about this silence, this stillness? His love. Now, if you do biblical study correctly, you can make a conclusion here. And that's this. It is the work of Messiah, let's be specifically, it says that this mighty one will save. It's only through the salvation of Messiah that we are going to be recipients of the love of God. Let me tell you, if you ever go to a secular university and take a course on world religions, I don't recommend it, but if you were to do it, and you would come to the professor and say, I believe it's only through Yeshua, Jesus Christ, through that gospel, that I can receive the love of God. You would fail. That is anathema. And sadly today, more and more churches are turning away from the uniqueness of Messiah as the Savior. This view, biblical view, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given to humanity by which we must be saved. No other. This is seen as bigotry. It is going to be labeled hate speech. You will be persecuted for such a perspective. But it's true. We see it in the old, we see it in the new. Look at verse, verse 17 where it says, as an outcome of being a recipient of his love, notice what he's going to do. This is God speaking. He will rejoice over you. This is what Zephaniah tells us. God is going to rejoice over you with what? Well, this passage began, Roni, shout with joy. 
when we receive his love. See, in the natural, we would think, God, I am receiving your love, and that causes me to shout with joy. That's not what it says here. When you receive the love of God through Mashiach, the Lord rejoices. Isn't that wonderful? That shows how much he loves you. That shouldn't be a surprise. The cross teaches us that. It is the evidence of God's perfect love. The cross teaches us what true love is. For God so loved the world that he gave. That is a sacrificial word. We need to learn that type of love. Verse 18. Now it's interesting because in this 18th verse, we see something unique for this passage. I've shared with you that joy, gladness, happiness, different synonyms that mean that same thing are, are peppered throughout these last verses. But we look here, we see one verse, one verse, that deals with sadness. A, a unique, a unique word doesn't find itself throughout Scripture, very rare. It says, Nugay, the sad ones. Those who are grieved. And it says, the sad ones from the appointed time. These appointed times, let's say it another way, these festivals. God uses the same word in Leviticus where he says, these festivals, they're not Israel's festivals solely. He, he entrusted them to Israel, but we all know this. They are his festivals. And what's so great is this. See, only in Hebrew can you see this. The word festival, most of you know, in this case, the appointed time, it's moed. You all know that. Here's the question. What is the primary word that the term moed comes from? We translate it an appointed time. But uh, today, I'm going to get on a plane very soon. And there's that destination. Where, where I'm going, what is that objective? Now, if you're flying El Al, it won't have the word destination. It will have the word Ya'ad. The same, the foundational word for Moed. Now, what's the practical application? Hear this. Now, I realize that we cannot keep these festivals today. There's no temple. But, and this is important, but we can study these festivals and being led by the Spirit we can apply festival truth to our life in order that through what the festivals work and bring about, reveal, it moves us to God's destination for our life. That's why they're His festivals. He owns them and He works with them so that we can get where He wants us to be. And the sad thing is that most people who are believers, who love the Lord, I have no doubt they are saved. These festivals are 
And it's not part of their, their faith, their, their lifestyle. But the scripture says that they're his festivals. We have a, a friend, and he says, you know, there's a basic principle. What is important to God should be important to me. Isn't that good? So simple, but so, so, so profound. The things that are important to God, a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What's important to him ought to be our priorities. So he says here, the sad ones from the festival, those who are grieving the festivals are special time of worship. These are the ones that are grieved because without redemption, without this restoration, they couldn't really get to where God wanted them to be. And what is God going to do? He says, I will gather up. And then he has two words. A word for burden and the word for disgrace. God is going to gather up from you that burden of disgrace. Now, this word kerpa, we, we've come across it before. It says that nations like Moab, like Ammon, this is what place, they place this disgrace upon Israel. And God's going to do what? Part of his redemptive work. He promises here, I'm going to gather it up, that which was upon her, meaning upon his people. Verse 19. Behold, see, this is looking forward to the kingdom. And God tells us what we can expect him to do prior to that kingdom. Verse, verse 19. Behold, I am dealing. It's a word of action, a word of doing. It's just that word, oh say. Behold, I am doing. Now, what you may not know is this. And you might say, well, I don't know Hebrew. Most of you have a phone. And there are so much free things out there in order for you to help you study the word of God. And one of the principles, usually, in the Hebrew language, and I'll use the terms that, that Christianity does, Judaism has others. But when we look at a verb, it's either perfect or imperfect primarily in the Hebrew text. It has nothing to do with the Greek terms, perfect and imperfect, very different. We could understand it easier, it's either in the past or the future. It is rare, it happens infrequently, that we see verbs in the Bible in the present tense. Here again, Christians call it the participle. But whenever we find a verb and you just go through and the scripture, you have a, a help on your phone, it tells you all the work's been done. It's there in your language. It tells you this is a present verb. Whenever a present verb appears, it marks it. It makes that passage emphatic. It emphasizes, in other words, when the present tense is used, 
it says, this is significant. And what is God doing that is significant? He says, Behold, I am dealing with all who afflicted you. I like that word, all. Everyone who has afflicted you, God says, I'm dealing with. This is part of the day of judgment. God is going to set things in order, not just for his people, but he's going to deal with those who were the enemies of his people. Those who hinder the will of God and the purpose of God for that people and for that land. See, God has not replaced Israel. After the rapture, after that end, read Matthew 24, verses 13 and 14. After that end, he turns his attention. Messiah began to prophesy specifically about the Jewish people, specifically in the land of Israel, that there would be great tribulation. Did not say the great tribulation. We won't get into that. But there's going to be great tribulation. And the source of that is not the wrath of God, the day of the Lord. The source of that is the Antichrist. These ones, look at the text. These ones who afflicted you. He says, I'm going to deal with them at that time. He's got a time. And ultimately, we know that Messiah, when he returns, although he's going to do many things, and again, I'm speaking about the second coming. Although he's going to do many things, there's three primary things that he's going to do. Just what we talked about. He is going to destroy the enemies of Israel. That is, the Jewish people. Those who want to go up to war to take Jerusalem. Why? Because Israel rejected the Antichrist. So many times, I know there's so many things on the internet, so many books. We received two or three since we've been in the States on this same thing. Many people think that the Antichrist is Jewish. Ask, why do you think that? Well, would the Jewish people accept him if he wasn't? Where in the scripture does it say that the Jewish people in the last day accept the Antichrist? Nowhere. Now, they may be pleased just like all the nations. He's going to usher in a time of, of peace, temporary peace. Security, temporary. Prosperity, temporary. What do we look in the scripture? When they say peace and safety, watch out. Sudden destruction. And that sudden destruction is about what? When Israel says no to the Antichrist. When he goes into the temple and he says, I'm God. I exalt myself above all other things that are worshipped. Israel's going to reject him, and that's when Ezrahila Yaakov tetril. This is when the time of trouble for Jacob, Jacob's tribulation, will begin. This is the enemies that God is going to deal with for Israel. He says, at that time, look again, verse 19, I will save the one who limps. 
Now, what does this mean? Well, again, you need to be diligent. This is the same word that appears in the passage of Scripture that deals with Mount Carmel. Remember Elijah, Eliyahu's frustration? He says to the people, how long will you limp between two perspectives? If Baal's God, serve him. If Jehovah, Yudhe is God, serve him. Well, we see here that this weak one, this one that, that, that's not committed enough, but nevertheless, God is going to save him. Those ones who have been driven, God's going to gather up. And notice what he's going to do. I will set, meaning these weak ones, these driven out away from the promises of God. Why? Driven out of the land. He is going to gather them up. Now, is that important? See, I do not understand. And not too long ago, I was speaking to a pastor, nice guy. But, but I'm concerned for him. And the reason that I'm concerned is so much of what he believes, so much of what he's teaching is not rooted in the truth of God. It's not because we're smarter. It's because we take time. We emphasize reading the Scripture. See, the issue is this. He does not think there's any significance whatsoever. God gathering up the people and bringing them back to the land. We went through many passages together where the prophets say that he would do that. In the last days, his response, maybe, maybe you're right, maybe. Don't be indifferent. Be passionate. Make your commitment to be on the promises of God. He says here, those who are driven away from the land. Now, who's going to finish the job? Well, it says, Matthew 24, verse 31. What an important scripture. See, my friend there, I don't know if this is important. Matthew 24, verse 31. When Messiah returns and we're talking about his second coming, he says here, I will send forth my angels and they will go to the four winds, meaning all the directions. And they are going to search and bring back my elect. He's not using elect in the same way that Paul does. Messiah is speaking of that in regard to the Jewish people. And I will search one end of heaven to the other, meaning all that world, in order to bring them back. That's Messiah's heart. And if you're a believer, that should be your heart as well. He says, I will set, middle of verse 19, I will set them its position. God will place them, meaning the Jewish people, that remnant of faith in the last days that will come to him by sight. I will set them for a praise and for a name. 
Now, many times that word name, people will understand that as a reputation. If you have a name, famous. They will be a praise, and I think some Bibles will say, and be renowned. But I would argue that there's a difference. See, name, usually in the Scripture, is synonymous with character. God is going to set us, He's going to give us praise because of a new character. It's just what we see so many places in the Scripture that if anyone is the Messiah, He is a new creation, a kingdom creation. I will set them for a praise and a name in all the earth. Now, what he's doing is bringing a change when he says, I will set them for this. It's because previously, in the last word in this Hebrew text for this verse, is their shame. God is doing an exchange. That shame that, that characterized them is going to turn into praise and into the very character of God. Look at verse 20. Third time we see this. We talked about that last night. In that time, usually good things happen when that expression comes about. What does he say? I will bring you at that time. I will gather you. Notice what he's saying. I'm going to bring you and gather you up, and the implication is back to the land. That's why Messiah said what he did in Matthew 24, verse 31. At that time, I will bring you, and in that time I will gather you, and I will give to you, notice the change. In the previous verse, for a praise and for a name, but now the order's turned around. What's the purpose for that? Now we know. If you know the laws of Greek and Hebrew exegesis, how to study the Bible, these hermeneutical principles, it tells us that he's going to give us a praiseworthy name. That our character is going to be praiseworthy. And that all comes about because of what? Look at the character here. In this third chapter, God says, surely they're going to obey me. Surely they're going to take my discipline. Surely they're going to be different. No, they weren't. But God didn't give up. God poured out that full measure of his wrath and brought this change. He brought the change where they have a praiseworthy character. Among, notice how it ends, among all the peoples of the world. God is going to use that remnant of Jewish people. Here in Zephaniah, we're not talking about a mixed multitude. We're not talking about Gentiles. Here we're talking about God's faithfulness to a remnant of Jewish people. That he is going to bring a change. Why? That's what he does. There was a time for the Gentiles and the fullness of the Gentiles. But now, he's turned away. That purpose has been fulfilled. And God's going to uniquely work among the Jewish people. And let me tell you, 
It is spiritual anti-Semitism to not see this in the Scripture. Because it's said over and over and over and over. Not just in Old Testament prophecies, but we see Messiah teaching this. You can't look at Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, or Romans 11, and not come to this conclusion. And the fact that it's controversial and debated is simply shameful. God says this, I will return. Now, it's not speaking about him returning, but he caused to return. What does it say? Your captivity. That is a term that relates to exile. Those who are outside the borders of the land. That, that Jewish community that's in the diaspora. God is going to return. He is going to bring them back. Are we seeing that today? We are. And we're going to see more and more and more of it. I'm not a prophet, but I read prophecy. It's going to happen. He says, I will return the captivity, your captivity, before your eyes. That's a promise. How do I know that? Notice how the scripture ends. Amar Hashem. Not says the Lord, but in the past, the Lord has said. It's in the past. Why? To tell us this is as good as done. What God says here through this prophet of Zephania, it's true. This is his plan. And when it's completed, the message here is when this is done, the outcome is going to be those shouts of joy, that unique gladness, that happiness, this, this exalting of God. Why? Because God kept his word. What he said he will do, he will do. That's the message of Sephania. And the conclusion for us is this. If he does it for Israel, he's going to have already done it for the church. Now, the last thing I want to say is this. We need to see that God's primary, his preferred way of reaching and saving Jewish people is through the gospel. But uniquely in the last days, he is going to bring a remnant to faith in that same gospel. There's no other way, right? There's no other way. This covenant theology that is heresy, this way that says there's one for this person and one for... No. There's only one way. But God is going to uniquely for a remnant of the Jewish people in the last days. He is going to move to bring them to faith in that same gospel. That they are going to look at Messiah. They're going to recognize Messiah. And they're going to receive Messiah. That's a promise for the remnant. I'll close with this. We need to understand that when we look at this world, people of faith are also remnant. Not the same remnant. Not the same prophecy. But we are unique. We do not belong to this world. Don't live like you do. 
the primary purpose of this conference this year is to say that we serve a holy God who is serious about sin. That He demands His people to be righteous. And you, not a prophet, but this is true, you are going to be challenged. Is righteousness your true character? Is righteousness what you're committed to? Is this your passion? What did Messiah say? Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Are you living that way? support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning, products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.